Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello again, hopefully, and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name's Mike Fenton-Stevens, and My Time Capsule is the podcast where I ask my guests to tell me the five things from their life that they would choose to preserve in a time capsule. They choose four things that they love and want to keep safe, but they also pick one thing they'd rather forget, something they want to bury in the ground and never think of again. My guest in this episode is John Coleshaw. As well as being warmly regarded by many as Britain's finest impressionist, John is an accomplished actor, presenter and public speaker. John is a founder member of the multi-award-winning BBC Radio 4 comedy Dead Ringers, which is now in its 21st year and 22nd series, including seven series on BBC Two. John's talent for mimicry also includes three series of Spitting Image, Radio 4's The Secret World, Impressionable John Coleshaw, Parkinson, The Royal Variety Performance, The Graham Norton Show, Friday Night with Jonathan Ross, 2D TV, Head Cases and John Coleshaw's Commercial Breakdown, as well as three series of BBC One's The Impressions Show, alongside Deborah Stevenson. John is also a regular guest on current affairs programmes, including The Now Show, which is really a comedy show actually, This Week and Newscast. John has portrayed David Bowie to great critical acclaim for the BBC World Service drama The Final Take, Bowie in the Studio, and John also portrayed the great Alan Wicker in the audio play The Other Side of the World, as part of Alan Wicker's centenary celebrations. John has performed many Doctor Who audio novels and dramas for Big Finish productions, including Scourge of the Cybermen and Terror of the Master, as well as Genesis of the Daleks, Death of the Daleks and The Five Doctors, among many others. On stage, John played King Arthur in Spamalot at the Harold Pinter Theatre, and he's currently touring in Les Dawson, Flying High, a funny, affectionate and poignant celebration of the much-missed comedy legend. 
And that's just a sample of this man's extraordinary career. But what of his life? And what are the things from it he really treasures? Plus the one thing he wishes he could forget, of course. Well, let's find out, shall we? As we hear John Colshaw's Time Capsule. Hello there, hello there. Sorry, my iPad got confused by the first link, but it likes this one. So oh, that's, that's good. good. That's all right, then. Good. How are you? How lovely of you to do this. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for asking me. Sorry it's taken a while, but I've just been constantly... I, I, I was just buried under learning words. Oh, I know. All of that. I know you had Edinburgh and then straight into the tour. How's it going? I had to learn an extra 40 minutes worth after Edinburgh. Oh, God, yeah. But it's all in there now and it's flowing, so that's all right. <laughs> well, I've seen several people say that they've been to see it and say how brilliant it is. Oh, that's very kind. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you know, I can imagine because without a doubt, the skill that you have is that you don't just do the voice. You do all the other stuff. You become the people. That's why your impressions are so extraordinary. Oh, you're far too kind, and this is more than I deserve. <laughs> <laughs> to stretch out as, as lads and not just have the catchphrases, but get into telling a full two-act story, as it were. You know? Yeah, brilliant. Have you always admired Les Dawson? Oh, always. Yes, always, always, always. It just um, the way that, you, you know, he, he was so funny. He'd just pull a little face and even before he'd said a word, you'd be howling, laughing, and so would everybody else in the room. Yeah. So, yeah, it was always very joyful, always a treat to watch him, you know. <laughs> I only ever remember one line from Les Dawson, but it's one that I've said many, many times in my life. Your face like a bag of spanners. <laughs> oh, so many descriptions like that. I'll, I'll regale a few of them in the chat. Okay, brilliant. So we're going to talk about five things that you want to put into a time capsule. That's the idea. That's yeah. very simple. So um, I hope it's been simple for you to choose them. Yes, I think so. And I think um, I, I, I broadly know what they are. Mm. I think as our chat goes along, that might even inspire me to go, oh, no, I'm going to choose that one. Yeah, yeah, that does happen. Yeah. And that's fine. I like the fact that people go, do you know what? Actually, while I'm talking about this, it suddenly reminds me of something because there are great swathes yeah. of your life that you never really think about, just occasionally pop into your head. But generally, you, you go through life thinking about what you're going to do that afternoon. Yes. And then suddenly somebody will say something and it reminds you, oh, God, yeah, I did that once. That's a long time ago. And you're reminded of whole swathes of your life that you've put sort of on the back burner, as it were. Yes, exactly. This sort of teases them out. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. All right, well, let's um, let's go through them slowly and see what you've come up with. What's number one? Uh, now, which category do we want to look at first? It's up to you. You know, I mean, four of them are things that you love, and they can be anything at all. They can be a person, a place, anything. And, and in fact, it's sort of ephemeral things as well. So, in fact, you know, just a feeling. I remember thinking about this when I first started, and one of the things that I thought I might choose is that one of my earliest memories is actually looking out of my pram. And I know I was because it was one of those old-fashioned ones with the hood, and it was pouring with rain. And all I have is an image of my mother with one of those plastic hoods you know, that you tied on when it rained to protect your hair. And that's all it is. Well, you, you've given me a reminder there, and this is part of the lovely sort of uh, spontaneity of, of, of this, I think. Mm. I, I've got similar memories. I can remember being sat in a pram. <laughs> where I looked like a, I, I looked like a sort of a baby version of Patrick Moore. <laughs> I do. I can remember being sat in a pram. I can re remember being sat in my high chair. Right. You know what you're sitting when you're a baby for eating and whatnot. You know. And I remember it being very comfortable. I remember it being quite good being high up. 
a good vantage point. Yeah. Yeah, maybe that's why I look, like looking over cityscapes on the top floor of a building. I enjoyed the position of the high chair. And my mum always told me that the first word I ever spoke was when I noticed a, a housefly just buzzing around in the kitchen. And I went, bird. <laughs> I can, yes, I can, I can remember that contentedness. So, yes, let's, uh, let's, let's put into a time capsule my first memories. And that's what they were. Mm. The shroudedness of that 1950s pram. Yeah. You could sort of look around. Well, you felt comfortable, didn't you? You felt safe in them because actually it surrounded you and it protected you from everything. And actually, you look at prams now and children always face away from their mothers, or usually do. Yeah. And one of the great comforting things about it when I was a child was that you were looking at your mother as she walked along and she could talk to you. Yes, that ever-present watching over you, Mm. that sense of communication. Yeah. It was a lovely accompaniment to the sense of just being pushed along. <laughs> yes. When, when you're at that age, you're discovering everything. You're discovering everything. I've got two great nieces, four and two. Funny names, but they like them. So, well, there's, yeah, there's that joke just uh, dealt with there. And watching them and the way that they just discover the, the world right now. Yeah. Um, my great niece, her, she finds great joy. In, um, we've got a bag of ping-pong balls, coloured ping-pong balls, probably used in a bingo machine. She loves throwing them into the pond, one after the other, and just fishing them out again. <laughs> the simple joys of life like that. Yes. You're a Lancashire lad, aren't you? Yeah, that's right. Brought, uh, brought up in Ormskirk in Lancashire, uh... a market town not far from Preston, Liverpool, Manchester. Um, and I was brought up in Ormskirk there. And um, my mum was... Uh, she used to... In the 1940s, in wartime, she used to work in a shop called the Mayflower, which was kind of like a World War II-style general store. Ah, brilliant. It would have made a great period drama. Yeah. And uh, she, she was quite the 1940s siren, my mum, you know. They always used to say she was the Betty Grable of Ormskirk. <laughs> <laughs> Very slim waist they had, didn't they? Yes, exa- exactly, mm. that 1940s kind of, kind of look. And a neighbour of ours, uh, God rest him, a lovely chap called Stanley, lovely fella. He said, "Oh, she were bonnie, your mother, you know. Oh, she were, she were. When she worked at the Maple, people would queue up just to have a look at her. Even if they didn't want anything, they'd queue up just because. Oh, what a star she were! What a star!" It's strange to think of your parents that way, isn't it? Yes, exactly. In in an era before your days, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I've got a photograph of my mother, and uh, and I'm always surprised at how beautiful she is because I think of her as an old woman. And that, of course, that's that's the way of life, isn't it? Yes, this is why it's it's lovely to have a time capsule to just peer into these areas. I do hope that time travel becomes possible for real. Oh, it's something I'd love to do. I really would love to do that. Where would you go? Wow, what a choice! What a choice! I think this is why I'd like to be a real life time lord. Uh, just to have that choice where to go first i think you'd have to start off gently Uh, i think i'd probably just take a quick trip to victorian times just have a little look around there try to blend in Mm -hmm. wear my most kind of outlandish overcoat and just sort of walk with a certain william (laughs) humbleness yes and you'd have to wear a hat definitely a hat and i'd try to pop along and see dickens and just get a sense of him at work to go to one of those performances, wouldn't that be amazing? Yes, yes. Astonish- I saw Simon Callow deliver one of those once, and it was breathtaking. Mm. 
as if Dickens had been taken out of his time zone and plunked into the present day. <laughs> um, so, yes, I'd have a little gander around Victorian times, and then I think I'd go back 67 million years ago oh. and just have a look at dinosaurs. Wow. I'd go and see, I, I'd want to see a real-life triceratops and just imagine the, the majesty of a creature like that. Yeah. I did love watching Walking with Dinosaurs. Mm. Get a real sense of how these creatures might have lived. And for months afterwards, if ever I saw a real tall conifer tree, similar to the sequoias in, in California, mm. if ever I saw a real tall tree like that, I would always imagine a brachiosaur at the top of it. Taking a bite. Yes, these things and images that live in your imagination. Yes, yeah. it's, it's the sense of scale is extraordinary, isn't it, in those things? Uh, although I have a fear that if you did go back in time to the dinosaurs, you'd be the cause of the end of them. They wouldn't need a meteor to land on Earth. They'd catch flu from you, and that would be the end of it. Yes, exactly, exactly. I wonder, I wonder if they'd have the constitution to just sort of uh, brush it off with a slightly hearty sneeze of an unusual tone. I don't know. Well, let's face it, they lasted, what, 100 million years? So uh, we, we've got a long way to go to catch up with them. Maybe it could have saved them. Maybe if I gave a brachiosaur a cold and it gave a hearty sneeze enough to deflect the asteroid. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> OK, I'm going to take you back to your pram. What did your yes. mum do after she left the hardware store? Was she just a mum? Oh, yes, absolutely. Mm. In the way that uh, people in 1970s uh, game shows, when, when Bruce Forsyth or Bob Monkhouse would, would say, so, yes, what, what do you do? You, so you're a housewife, dear? Yes, housewife. <laughs> and, she, and she was, and she, she loved that and, um, you know, made for a very happy and settled home. Yes. She had a gorgeous sense of humour, which she didn't realise that she had, uh. which made it all the more endearing. And she was a bit like, uh, if you were to sort of do a caricature of her humour and so on, she always used to really, really laugh when she saw um, Roy Barraclough <laughs> playing Sissy. Yes. Was, you know, I think it was all, you know, the good quality knitwear and putting on the phone voice. Oh, hello, dear, hello. <laughs> she loved to play about with that sort of persona from time to time. She would have liked Mrs Bouquet. Yes, yes. My Auntie Stella was a little bit like her. Really? Yeah. They were quite a formidable set of sisters. They really were. My mum, she, she sort of looked a little bit, at, at times, a, a little bit like Molly Sugden. <laughs> looked a bit like uh, Mrs Slocum. And I remember a, a treasured memory back in 1999. They, my mum and dad came with me to... Um, I, I'd, I'd won an award, the Comic Heritage Newcomer to Comedy Award. And they came with me from Ormskirk to um, the Hilton Park Lane. And my mum met Molly Sugden there. Wow. And it was as if she was the fourth sister... <laughs> and they got on so well and sort of became instant friends, really. It was so charming. It's the delight of that sort of area, isn't it? In fact, it's strange when you can say, I'm Ormskirk, near Preston, Liverpool, Manchester. They're the places around it, but that's where I'm from. And people, particularly in the north, I think, although my family were brought up in London and they're very particular about where in London they were brought up. Uh -huh. Yes, quite. And I think it affects the way you are, the way you behave. And if you come across somebody from the same area, you do instantly have a shorthand, don't you? Yes, precisely. precisely. And that's so interesting with London as well. London being as villagey as it is, mm. you feel that really precise sense of, of pride and identity of, oh, yeah, Bethnal Green, Bethnal Green through and through. Yeah, uh, yeah no, Beckton, yeah, Beckton. Canning Town, as precise as this. Mm. And there are different accents. I mean, you're a master of these sort of things, but I've always 
the the difference between the north and the south of London, the, the accent is quite marked, I think. You know, there's not a Cockney accent. There are a number. I mean, if you're from Tottenham, a lot of people in Tottenham have have a soft R. So they're right. All right? I'll leave, leave you. You're right travel, you are, mate. They've got that soft R. Whereas in the south, it, it ain't like that. It's much harder. Yeah. Yeah, that's so... The way the Industrial Revolution and who knows what influences shaped all of that yeah. is, is fascinating to see. Yeah, I love the Tottenham uh, style there. There was something wonderfully Paul Whitehouse about that. <laughs> that may be where he came from. Yeah, that's why he did it. I don't know. Um, but, yeah, that's, that's a, a, a beautiful uh, observation. I'm fascinated by um, when people would travel from Ireland, from, from Dublin, I think, in particular, across to Liverpool. And how the influence of the accent worked there, because you know if you do the Dublin accent like that, you know it's not too far before it goes Liverpool. You know, no. so you can imagine the influences there. You know, maybe the the soot of the city causing that constriction and just that kind of tightening up like that. Yeah, and of course, you know, you go back and you know the rhythms are quite similar. That's very true. Just the use of de instead of the. It's a specific thing, isn't it? Yeah, he's talking more efficient. You know, why just you know de. To paper, you know, the, the times, you know, <laughs> just gets the word done quicker. Yeah. <laughs> well, what a lovely place to grow up, though. The thing I love about the North, whenever I go to, you know, most parts of the North, is that you can see the countryside from the city centre. Yeah, yes, exactly. You know you haven't got far to go. No. And it's as if the, the, the city centre is, is there sort of growling and barking and being very precise and... Just behind that, the landscape, probably in the voice of Brian Sewell, saying, don't worry, everything's fine. I have this full order. Everything is peaceful. Everything's The, the severity of the city is contained. <laughs> oh, you remind me of the first time I heard you do these things. And I remember meeting you in, well, in Edinburgh, I think, first, but actually then also during spitting image recordings and things where, you know, we would be quite often just singing songs and stuff, but occasionally you'd come in to do voices on some of the songs. It's always astounded me, the the ability that, you know, very few people have that skill that you have. It is. It's, it's an intriguing thing. It, it, it's always, uh, I, I always love it when all of us meet. Uh, if ever I have a chat with uh, Rory, yes. um, I love to compare, you know, we compare notes. Mm. We'll compare observations. Mm. Um, Alistair McGowan came down to the uh, Les Dawson show um, a couple of weeks ago at Shrewsbury. And once again, we, we love to compare and contrast. Alistair has a very, he'll always notice the most fascinating particular things about people. Mm. He'll notice certain things that nobody else has tended to do. And it really does give him his own unique take on people. Yeah. So who's managed to hit on Rishi Sunak so far? Anybody? Oh, I've been working. I've been working on him. Um, yes, I did him on Dead Ringers when he became Chancellor to get to people. Sometimes you start off with who they sound like, just as a way in, just as a the, that's the station you arrive at before you walk onto the specific destination. Mm. And if you sort of take on Tony Blair with that precision and the staccato pitched somewhere about here, but then soften it, make it a little bit more smooth running. I will do whatever it takes. I will work day in, day out to serve you as the honour of Prime Minister in this <laughs> deep responsibility of government. That's very good. That's very good because actually that also, that, that atonal nature to his voice, he, he's not learned to, to sing song at all, has he? 
he, he's all about precision, getting the job done, mm. being precise. This is what we must do, and I will do it. There is a precision. Yes. Oh, fantastic. And you talk about impressionists. Jan Ravens never meets anybody without, within five minutes, basically doing their own voice back at them, does she? Exactly. You can almost see sometimes, you know, the, <laughs> the, the, the information being downloaded. and then it's, it's there. I caught her doing it once. I was thinking, she was talking to me and I went, are you doing me? And she went, no, I'm not. No, yes, no. you are, you are. <laughs> Very often you don't realise it. I think it, it no. just comes from a, a fascination and a, a love of character mm. and what's going into it and what makes somebody recognisable. Yeah. What bits do you stretch and exaggerate in order to give the audience an element of surprise when, when they hear it? Yes. Oh, yes, they do do that. I hadn't realised it. <laughs> Jan decoding, decoding. Mm. Her Liz Truss is just astonishing. Isn't it? What a shame she's so short-lived. Jan's impersonation was the only good aspect about all of that. <laughs> the wonderfulness of it was not only did she have the voice, that's always a given with Jan, but she, she'd keyed into the attitude. Mm. She decoded this certain attitude, this attitude of great ambition, what was it Matthew Paris described? Um, colossal ambition and overconfidence teetering on a pinhead of a political brain. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, Jan also had that amazing thing with Liz Truss of the little girl coming out into her. You're the young, the student, the, the, the oh, my God, I'm so brilliant. And also, I'm a bit crazy. I'm taking risks. Yes. Whilst totally living my best life, I know. <laughs> That's it, yeah. <laughs> well, we've rambled on, but uh, but I think we will definitely put those very early memories in as your first thing, John. That yes. goes in as number one. I know we've picked at some others, but I'll take that as the first one, and then we'll we'll find something a bit later on in your life and see what happens then. Yes. So, so you were very young when you started in this, weren't you? Uh, yes, I suppose I was. Mm. Um, I was at sixth form college. I suppose that should come later. In in school, I can remember I loved the geography lessons when they were about the solar system. <laughs> yes. Space was the first thing. And that was just a few years before that, I'd, I'd watched an episode of The Sky at Night, one day being off school with German measles, one of those fashionable conditions of the 1970s. Mm. And I was off school watching a repeat of The Sky at Night. And Patrick Moore was so fascinating, so engaging, so eccentric, and talking about Comet Aaron Rowland and Phobos and Demos in <laughs> a reductive orbit around Mars. Um, <laughs> and the subject was so fascinating. And I remember um, I, I borrowed my dad's binoculars that night and just simply went out into the back garden and looked at the moon through them, a crescent moon, and it turned the garden into the universe mm. and my, my brother came out to join and we were looking at various things in the um i think venus was visible at the time and um saturn we were trying to see if we could see the rings of saturn through the binoculars but not not quite and he went to get um he'd had a copy of the observer's book of astronomy written by patrick moore mm. i think this should be the second thing that goes in fantastic and i remember just reading reading the uh, observer's book of astronomy by patrick moore cover to cover and then here were descriptions about what we were looking at in the garden, that the moon and the planets and the stars and the constellations, the Orion Nebula, <laughs> looking at Orion, that little sort of that sort of fuzzy little section. 
Yeah. And when you think that this is not just a bit of grease on the lens of the binoculars, it's a huge star-forming region. And who knows what worlds and what other stars and surfaces of planets and the views that you would see, all of that being formed in there. Mm. And you're looking at this next to your garden shed, you know. <laughs> it's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. It is. I mean, you will definitely find this talking to your great nieces that as they get older and you can point those things out, that enthusiasm gets passed on instantly. I, I love things that do this to our brains, mm. that take us so far, far, far beyond the day-to-day things we can just get bogged down in. Yeah. Things that take you beyond what you can possibly fathom. A thousand light years. What kind of distance is that? <laughs> and in the sense of the universe, it's not all that far, really. No. The James Webb Telescope is seeing much further than that. And oh, I think it's good to have your mind not only boggled, but absolutely just shredded, really. Mm. And when you start to think of the scales and, and, and enormity that you have to deal with in astronomy, Patrick Moore, once again, he summed this up very well. The distances... And the sense of time and scale in astronomy is far, far beyond what we could normally accept in our day-to-day life as human beings. Nevertheless, we just have to accept them. (laughs) It's simple little things, like that it takes seven seconds for the light to get from the moon. Mm -hmm. And that looks almost touchable, doesn't it, the moon? Yeah. And the sun, the light leaves the sun, and it's seven, eight minutes before it reaches us. Eight minutes, yeah. It's... it's... (sighs) I love the idea of um, there's a planet, one of the exoplanets discovered. I love how they are dis- discovered. Some of the most powerful telescopes can fix upon a, a star and the light will dip for a precise microscopic degree mm. for a precise amount of time. And this is caused by one of the planets around this star transiting in front of it. <laughs> and the light drops just that little bit. And this is where the planet can be measured um, whether it's a, a gas giant or more of a terrestrial planet, um, and, and that these planets can be classified in this way. And we know of thousands of exoplanets now. And I heard the technology described as the equivalent of measuring a mosquito pass in front of a car headlight from a mile away. <laughs> that's amazing, isn't it? I mean, surely, if anything, that's what we're here for. We're here because we have... I wonder if we're the only people in all of that vastness. I wonder if we're the only ones who've ever worked out what it is. I wonder. I think we're on our way. Uh, I think we are on our way. And hopefully we're not doing too bad, you know, that the human race makes some dreadful, dreadful mistakes. But in terms of deep time, we are but a toddler. Mm. If we can keep learning and keep fashioning things in a better way for betterment and so on, give us a million years. Once again, that's not a very long time in terms of evolution. No. A million years from now, we should be in a much better place. One would hope. Yes. This is the naive idealism in my mind. And Mm. who knows, if if there are other civilizations, other alien races, technological civilizations just out there, I wonder if they're just keeping a good little eye on the human race and thinking, well, they're not quite ready yet. No. Let's give them a little bit more time to just learn and settle, evolve beyond how ridiculous war is and evolve to an enlightened space where things are worked out in a better way. Yes. You do wonder if those creatures actually have discovered almost an immortality so that, in fact, they're around long enough 
to be able to deal with these things. So, yeah. for example, if we need to see these people, we need to live for a thousand light years in order to get there. I'm sure it must be possible. And to compare it to a one human life, when you're a toddler, you're running around, you're falling over, you fight with your siblings, you throw custard in their face, you steal their toys, you do this and so on. Hopefully, by the time you know most of us are of a more refined age, things are a little smoother, softer, wiser. We're all a little bit more like Obi-Wan Kenobi. Perhaps if an entire civilization, what point in time is it where we've all reached that point? Mm. The human race is but a toddler in terms of deep time at the moment, yeah. Yeah, but fortunately as a toddler we get pushed around in our mum's prams, which is nice. Yeah. We've got to become old again and be pushed around again in a wheelchair. <laughs> we'll be okay because Patrick Moore's written it down in his book. Yes, the Observer's uh, Book of Astronomy, and he did write many, many others. Um, I was very lucky to uh, work on some episodes of The Sky at Night, and uh, in his library there were so many books that he had written and that Arthur C. Clarke had written. Uh, they were great friends. It was a high council of the Time Lords study mm. with uh, brass telescopes, astrolabes, star charts, and gin. <laughs> <laughs> it's a brilliant thing, isn't it, that the BBC would say, OK, we'll have this fellow here who seems to know a lot about this. We'll just let him talk about it, and he'll look at the sky, and he'll talk about what's going on in it, and it'll be a programme about astronomy. And mm. then everybody from that era... We all watched it. Everybody yeah. did. And there was something so quintessentially BBC-ish about it. Yeah. That feeling of the 1950s, that properness of the 1950s was always at the heart of that programme. And not with the assumption that people won't be interested in this or, in fact, that they won't understand it, which is a, a, a great mistake that people make again and again. People are far more intelligent than they're ever given credit for, I think. Yes, quite. Quite exactly. And then the viewers, they, they found their way to it. Mm. The formality of how it was presented is something I was always very comforted by. I love that formality. Yeah. You know, sometimes when you get people going, hey, okay, guys, yeah, you know, if you like this content, don't forget to click and subscribe, hey. <laughs> on, tighten it up a bit. <laughs> yes, with things scrolling across the button all the time. Yes. I didn't watch this programme in order to read things. But perhaps I'm just a bit poor-fist in that way, you know. <laughs> <laughs> all right, John. In goes his book of astronomy. So we'll move on to something else. What else are you going to move to? This episode is brought to you by the all-new Dacia Jogger, the award-winning seven-seater with plenty of space for family and friends. The car made for adventure, which means it can handle almost anything thrown at it. The sort of car that my grandson Natty and I could have done with on our journey to Aylesbury, as he recalled in this conversation with me and my son John. We've had some journeys, haven't we, Natty? John? Well, where did we go? It was only about a month ago, wasn't it? Where did we go? We went to go and see my auntie. So what does that make her to you? So she'd be your sister's. My... Uncle's aunt? I don't know. No. Uh, the grandmother's daughter-in-law's son. Well, your sister-in-law... That's the one. My auntie and your great-auntie, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Who is that? Tracy. Tracy, OK. We went to go and see Tracy and Dave. In Aylesbury and it took ages. Did it? It took ages, that's why. <laughs> why? What happened? Because we got stuck in traffic. Yeah. Uh, where did we get stuck first? Well, first of all, so we went on, it just started flying off on the A21 from Tom and Wells, off we went. And um, Grandad said, oh, it's only going to take an hour. And then we got stuck on traffic on the M25 uh, mm. to go through the Dartford crossing. 
That was bad, wasn't it? That was very I bad traffic. I got stuck in that as well for okay. about an hour. Yeah, so did we. We played this really good game, though, for ages. It was ages and ages we played this for. Mm. And we played a game where we were guessing what car we had in mind, mm. you know? Different car brands. You gave us a letter, didn't you? Yeah, you gave us the letter for a clue. And um, I closed D once um, for Dacia, and yeah. no one guessed it. Nobody got it? Nobody no. got it. <laughs> Nobody got it. We were going through all of them. I even said Datsun, which I don't think is a car make anymore. Make them anymore. Really? No. Daimler, we said. Uh, Dennis, I said, which is a make of fire engines. Yeah, isn't it? none of them were correct. No, and what's the lorry one that you somebody guessed, beginning with D? Daff. Daff. That's right, yeah. Yeah, so we played that for ages. That and got, then, um, then we got through the tunnel. Then we didn't got we? through the tunnel, finally. Yeah, this was when, because we were a little bit behind you, weren't we? Yeah. And when we got through the tunnel, my sat nav was saying that it was going to take hours on the M25, so it told us to go through central London. Oh, okay. So that's what we did, and which way did you go? We, well, we turned off. We went and got some lunch, didn't we? Yeah, we and went and got to lunch. We're through the traffic, it's no problem now. And then we switched well, the off. the sat-nav this time was saying, yeah, it'll only take about an hour. And, and Natty said to me, but you said it would take an hour from Tom's Rose. Exactly. Said, well, now it's taking an hour from here. Mm. And I was like, OK, that's fine. And then... Suddenly. We got stuck in traffic again. Mm. Did you get stuck in traffic during central London? Or was that fine? It was it was busy, but we moved, we kept moving the whole way, but we didn't get stuck like you got stuck. Yeah, we got completely stuck. So then we turned off again. But <laughs> and we went the other way, and we went back the yeah. other way. And then Bam was just like, oh, no. she was trying to work it out on the set there, wasn't she? Yeah, and then you were just like, come on, do this and that, and then she was like, well, I don't know how to work a sat nav. So we were just stuck going the way that no one knew and then she said my battery's running out so then i was like i can do it on my phone but uh -huh. i need the battery to do it because i only have 15 percent or something so then we had to try and get the charger to work because it wouldn't work <laughs> oh, no. my phone was running out of battery and then they kept on handing me chargers and all sorts until it finally charged up and i was charging it and i was just looking on my phone on the map Telling them the way. And you took us right Auckland, across country, didn't you? We didn't go on any right more motorways. The country. To Aylesbury. I took yes, I know, yeah. So I took you from right like near the sea on that part of upper England, well, sort of like above London, that mm -hmm. way. Yeah. All the way over to a bit further on, like to yeah. Aylesbury. So I yeah. took us right across the country. And how long did it take us in the end, that it hour? It took us uh, five hours and 28 <laughs> minutes. Yeah. Oh. It was a long journey. But you, and which car did you go in? The Fiat 500. Fiat 500. Tiny, tiny little car. car. Granddad's tiny car. Yeah. Mm. So it was a bit squashed. Yeah. We had all the luggage in the back as well. You and Edie in the back with all the luggage. Yep, squashed up. <laughs> yeah, we really could have done with some more room, I'd say. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks, Natty. Thank you for being our guest, and thank you for saving the day. Because you can handle anything, can't you? Yeah. If you were a car, you'd be the all-new Dacia Jogger. The all-new Dacia Jogger. Visit dacia.co.uk to find out more. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
it. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back. Let's return to the lovely John Coleshaw and find out the remaining things he'd like to put in his time capsule. Oh, my goodness. Um, I think I might stay with the sense of astronomy and go to the year 1999, mm -hmm. where I witnessed my first total solar eclipse, which was um, profound, absolutely profound. I was on a ferry from Portsmouth to Le Havre. Perfect. It was cloudy over Cornwall, unfortunately, and the wonderful event was pretty much blocked out there. Although the darkening, when the, the totality was happening, mm. just instant darkness and then instant light again. That must have been very interesting to watch from beneath the clouds, at least. Yeah. But still heartbreaking to miss the real eclipse. Mm -hmm. We were lucky because we were on a ferry that could go to the less cloudy area. Right. And we were immensely lucky and we got it. And I remember looking through the eclipse viewers, these silvered, aluminized mylar, they call them these eclipse viewers, and just watching the sun gradually have this bite taken out of it more and more and more and more. Just seeing the clockwork of the solar system like this was eerie, frankly eerie. And also, when there was just that tiny slither of the sun left, just an illuminated crescent, the light on the Earth is, is like something you've never seen. Mm. A weird monochrome twilight which you just don't get in any other conditions no that was frankly eerie and then as the the, the final sunlight is blotted out and the solar corona the atmosphere of the sun just just bursts into view with the solid blackness at the center of it astonishing the, the greatest sight in all of nature a total solar eclipse yeah I didn't quite get to see it myself. Uh, I know exactly what you're talking about because I was further down in France at the time. And, uh, yes. and you're right, it went monochrome. Things lost colour and all the birds got very confused and all went quiet and started to nest and sort of settle down on the branches thinking, oh, oh, I didn't think this was now, but anyway, here we go, better go to sleep. And it was extraordinary. <laughs> Everything just went to sleep. Nature went to sleep. Mm -hmm. And we sat there and were looking at the tiny little sliver of the sun but it didn't quite cover it because I was too far down. So I can imagine that that moment of going into complete darkness must have been astonishing. Nothing sets you up for that. It really, really doesn't. Just when the solar, the solar corona, boom, 
zooms into visibility. Wow. Rather like turning on a light. It's as if somebody has got the pieces together and just gone <laughs> like that. <laughs> and then you're aware that that's there all the time, but of course we yeah. don't see it because of the power of the light in between it, in the middle of it. It sort of blots it out. Exactly. And the, 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 the astrophotographers are all there getting the photos of the, of the corona. It's always a different shape each time. With every eclipse, the corona is doing different things. Incredible. So 1999, that was quite even. That was quite fluffy. One in 2017, which I saw over the Menan Boots near Idaho, was quite triangular. It was almost like the Star Trek insignia, oh. you know, quite triangular like that. But it's different each time. But there's nothing like seeing that. And I, I was 31 when I saw my first total solar eclipse. So do you chase them? Do you deliberately go there? Oh, yes, yes, yes. I've seen three wow. up to now. Great. Uh, this is the thing. If you, if you miss the one in France, there are, there are others. They happen somewhere in the world every two and a half years or so. So there will be, there will be more. But um, the, the one in uh, 2015, that was over um, the Faroe Isles. We went on an astronomy cruise to watch it. And for the seven days before the eclipse, the sky was perfectly clear, <laughs> crystal clear. And then on the morning of the eclipse, you're very nervous to look through the windows to see what the weather's doing, to see if it's cooperating with you. And sure enough, the day of the eclipse, absolutely solid, leaden skies. No. Sleet was falling. Oh. Sleet. And you're thinking, oh, dear, oh, dear. However, luckily, one of the people on the trip was a, a brilliant astronomer and a great uh, friend of mine, Pete Lawrence, who presents on the sky at night a lot. And the night before, he'd been having a chat with the, the ship's captain, and they'd been looking at the weather satellites, mm. and they were working out, if we stay in our proper course, we're going to be completely clouded out. But if we do a handbrake turn of the MS Boudicca and go that away, <laughs> we might just have a chance. So overnight, we, we did actually feel the, 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 the ship speeding up, changing course, going into choppier waters a little bit. Um, <laughs> another friend of mine, uh, Paul Abel, the cabin next door to him, the walls are very thin. And overnight he heard sliding glass, a shattering, and a voice call out, Oh, Christ, my teeth! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was Brian May, I should imagine. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was someone that... But the morning of it, the, the morning of the eclipse, which had started off so badly, eventually, because they plotted the right course, the clouds began to thin and they began to spread out a little bit. And then they were hazy. We could see the partial phases of the bike coming out. And then at the appointed time, 10 past 10 in the morning, whatever it was, the cloud parted like the water of the Red Sea. And they're in the middle of it, the total solar eclipse. Wow. It was wonderful. There was a fellow watching it with us called, um, he, he was 95, Frank Truman, and we all felt that he brought us luck in a way. But watch it alongside him with his 95-year-old eyes, taking it in with as much leaping enthusiasm as, as all of us. Mm. Yeah, that was a special one. Yes, those things do bring the child out in you, and, uh, and rightly so, so they should. We all need to bring the child out, and it's a bit more, I think. Yes, precisely. Mm. So, yes, they can go in the eclipses. Well, lucky you. Absolutely. I will put all three in for you. And any ones that come along in the future, I'm jealous. Okay, good. That's three things. So we've got two other things. We've got one thing that you want to put in because you want to keep it and one because you'd like to put it in there and forget it. Okay. Mm. One thing to keep. What else shall we keep? 
I might, I might go for the Royal Variety performance, 2001. Brilliant, yes. Yeah. Was that your first? Yes, I've, I've, I've done two up to now. Mm. 2001 was the first. And what an experience. What an experience. I remember when, you know, just starting out and you sort of set your aim to these things. Mm. But they seem so, so unattainable. But then you, you might just have a few combinations of luck and a following wind and these things can, can come your way. And I remember, I remember doing my turn, doing a Dale Winston at the end, and then the real Dale walked on and said, now then, now then, what's going on here? You know, <laughs> give me a, a bit of a telling off like that, which was joyful. He was such a generous, generous soul. He was a lovely man, wasn't he, Dale? Yeah, so full of humour, so full of mischief, mm. so full of light. And that velvety, velvety voice, just instant optimism right there. <laughs> So yeah, and I remember doing the doing the, the line up afterwards, you know, you're lined up there. And down the line is, you know, Her Majesty the Queen gradually getting nearer and nearer and nearer. And you feel quite nervous. You know, Dale Winton was that side and Andrea from the cause was this side. <laughs> and then the Queen comes along and um she was the most serene and, and, and calming person that you could have wished to meet. Mm. Uh, with, with a sort of a, a, a serenity, as if it was as if she was lit from within. There was something ethereal about her, but also very down to earth and very chatty as well. It's such an unbelievable thing, you know, to have done the Royal Variety and uh, you know um, to have got through it, had a had a favourable reaction, and then you have that at the end. Yeah, that's certainly a thing to cling on to. Yeah, astonishing thing to have done, and now more than ever, the fact that you met the Queen and that you have that. Little moment of personal connection with her is a is a, a real treat. I think it's quite something. Yes, yes. Many years ago, I met an old woman in a hospital when I was doing pantomime, and she had met Queen Victoria. Oh wow! She'd only given her flowers and curtsied and then moved back, but she'd said thank you to her. And I thought, what an extraordinary thing to be alive and to have met Queen Victoria. But as time goes on, that will be. That would be the case for people talking about Queen Elizabeth. And, you know, these things move on and fewer and fewer people have that experience. I was fascinated watching a clip once of, um, I think, a fellow who had been born in something like 1860. Wow. And he was being interviewed in 1920. And the the sensibility in which he was describing things, oh, you know, the, the, the old days were better and all these new things are coming in. You know, can we manage with it? Is, is it all going a bit too fast? It's in exactly the same way as that subject is spoken today. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we've seen a lot of things with the telegraph coming in and the railways. It's sure going to make things very different. And Well, I don't know how it's going to make things, but a fellow was describing the telephone and he said, you mark my words, one day there's going to be a telephone in every town in this state. <laughs> <laughs> that talk on the borderline of then and the future so similar to the context of, of how we describe that even today. You really do want to be a Time Lord, don't you? Yes, I think so. We've talked a lot about time and what it does to how you view the world and actually how the enormity of it is something that we can't really cope with. We all go through that period where the world that we know becomes a world that is alien to almost everybody else. Yes, exactly. And, and when you look at it from another context, from another time, it, it's out of reach. You can't get at it. No. And so if you want to go go to it in whatever way you can, by reading, by watching old footage, by imagining. Mm. Do you know when they say people sort of go, well, they choose to die, almost? I wonder if, in fact, they just go, do you know what, I've, I've had enough of moving forward. I'm going to move back. 
Yeah. It's a way of having a tea break, you know, <laughs> in a profound way, in a larger way. <laughs> I always borrow Tom Baker or John Pertwee's voice when I make a profound statement like that. It's the perfect voice. It just puts a bit of gravitas around it. <laughs> yes. And you've done that voice with Tom, haven't you? Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I've worked with him quite frequently with Big Finish Productions, mm. um, where I play the, the, the Brigadier. Brigadier Lethbridge Stewart. Yes, we never did bother much about rules, as I remember, Doctor. Um, <laughs> Very good. Nicholas Courtney. Much missed Nicholas Courtney. Mm. But yes, um, sometimes Tom will be sitting in the studio at um, Audio Sorcery in Tunbridge Wells. Yes. We'll be regaling these marvellous stories, you know, <laughs> talking to John Leeson, who, of course, played K-9, and the beautiful friendship that they had. And it's, it, you hear him, it is most conversational when talking with John Leeson, a friend of so many years. Mm. And all the, the booming profundity sort of settles back, and it, it goes into a conversation. Mm. And so how long were your questions set on Mastermind? Oh, for quite a while, yes, yes, I used to work. Uh, this is John Leeson, uh, the voice of K9. Mm. He'd say, yes, I, I worked for Mastermind quite a lot. I used to set the questions. And, uh, you know, for every question that they used, I was paid 70p. <laughs> 70p? Well, that was about 1978. That was around four rounds of drinks, wasn't it? <laughs> That's not too bad. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my word. <laughs> That's where I am, John, in Tunbridge Wells, and I've been to those big finish ah. recordings. I've done them there. We did a big finish recording together a long time ago. The Kingmaker. Kingmaker, yes, written by Nev Fountain. That's right. That would have been about, maybe that's around about 1999 or so. But that was in a weird studio in Brixton or something. Yes, yeah. on a Sunday afternoon. Mm. Yes, an afternoon. It's a long time ago, though. There we are. So all we have to do now is think of something that you'd want to put in there and go, that's the end of that. I don't have to worry about that again. I think what I shall put in for that one is the time when I almost caused the building of Red Rose Radio in Preston to burn down. <laughs> A confession I've never spoken of before. <laughs> Back in 1987, I was 19 years old and I got a job on Red Rose Radio. Um, I recorded a hospital radio tape and I sent it in and I got the graveyard shift, two till six in the morning mm. in a reputedly haunted church. And um, there was one time when um, I went into the newsroom. I was 19. I used to, I used to have a, a few cigarettes in those days, maybe about 10 a day. And I went, into the, um, I went into the newsroom where you were allowed to smoke in those days. And I, I was playing um, Hotel California by The Eagles, mm. which was known uh, as a Siggy record because it was about seven odd minutes long and it gave <laughs> you enough time. <laughs> yes, that and Bohemian Rhapsody. Yes. yes. Well, that's funny you should say that. I shall come to that. Ah. And so um, I went into the newsroom and had a little regal king size, one of those of the age, made a few notes, made a cup of tea, and then the guitar solo of Hotel California started. All right, better go back in. Stubbed out the little cigarette, plonked it in the bin, went into the studio, had my cup of tea and continued. Then playing a, another hit of the era, probably it might have been something by Five Star or whatever, <laughs> <laughs> that red light, just to the left-hand side of the clock, started to flash. And I thought, good grief, that's the fire alarm. <laughs> good heavens, I better... So, going through the, the record collection, found Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> <laughs> Put that on, 
and dashed back into the newsroom to see that there was indeed a bin fire going on in one of the litter bins. So um, I found a, a towel, put it under some water, put it over the top, just as I'd seen about chip pans in the public information films. <laughs> that dealt with the fire. Just the underside of a, new, a wooden news desk had been slightly charred. So I dabbed that as well. And I opened all the windows. Thankfully, the, the airflow and the wind flow vacuumed all of the smoke out. <laughs> the security guard who'd been in another part of the building, I think he, I think he nodded off, he missed everything. <laughs> but by the time um, Bohemian Rhapsody had gone to, doesn't really matter, anyone can see. <laughs> I'd sorted it all out by then. <laughs> <laughs> he was right, it didn't really matter. Uh, yes, yeah, exactly. And then I found uh, the 12 inch version of Blue Monday by New Order, which gave me another seven or eight minutes just to go around and really check everything was okay. And it was. And nobody ever knew about it until now. <laughs> this is a public information film on this podcast. Be careful where you discard your cigarettes. <laughs> Don't do it. Stop them out in the proper place. That was a public information film. Thank you, John. Thank you for finishing on that important note for everyone. Quite. John, it's been such a joy to see you and, uh, and really lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much for doing this. In the midst of what must be a really busy and trying time for you, so uh, I really appreciate it. Oh, it's, it's lovely. Uh, the, 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 the play, the, the, the Les Dawson play, I saw it. all the words are in the, more or less the right order in my head now. Yeah. And, uh, and to, to, to have a natter with you like this, what a tonic, and thank you so much. <laughs> Bless you. You have been listening to my Time Capsule, with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, John Colshaw. Thank you for listening. Please do rate and maybe even review this show if you have a spare moment. And if you'd like to hear more, then you can subscribe to the podcast. It won't cost you anything, but whenever you fancy listening, we will make sure that you have instant access to all the latest episodes, plus the close to 250 other episodes we've released. You can keep track of what we're up to by following me or my time capsule on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. Or indeed, all three of them. I think you get a slightly different view from each. And we're happy for you to use any of them to contact us with any questions you may have or suggestions for possible future guests. And of course, you'll get to see the other side of things with lots of family and work-related posts and the occasional tweet that I probably regret afterwards. Still, there you go. You can download or stream the theme tune written and performed by Pass the Peas Music on Spotify anytime you like. This has been a cast-off production for Acast, and our producer was John Fenton-Stevens. Now, you may be listening to this in the middle of summer in 2042, and the chances are I'm well gone from this world, or sitting in a bath chair sucking yoghurt through a sock. But as I record this, we have completed Halloween, we've had my wife's birthday, and fireworks have been set in the air at enormous cost and with very little result that lingers in the memory. And we're all gearing up for Christmas. Yes, I'm starting to put together some best-of episodes from the last year for release around the festive season, and hopefully a special Christmas episode with various guests we've had on the podcast in the last year talking about their Christmas time capsule items. Anyway, as we know, Christmas starts earlier and earlier every year. So, to celebrate that, let me be the first to say, or sing, Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Make the Yuletide gay. From now on our troubles will be miles away. 
Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your hearts be light. From now on our troubles will be out of sight. Here we are as in olden days, happy golden days of yore. Faithful friends who are dear to us will be near to us once more. Someday soon we all will be together, if the fates allow. Hang a shining star upon the highest bough. And have yourself a merry little Christmas. Why did I put that sock full of yogurt? Bye. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips Tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.